Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. All right, so... um Getting underway in our uh, topics, our hard questions series, it, uh, I was reflecting this week on how I feel like news should be harder to print, right? Like not, and I don't mean like going back to like a printing press or anything like that, a movable type and Gutenberg, uh, but like it, it just seems like news is so easy to publish now that anyone and anything can get it out there. And I say thing because we now have bots producing news. And uh, I'm looking at this stuff and I'm thinking, this is, it's just so odd to me. So I, I got interested in a while back and I started reading about it and kind of trying to figure out, you know, how does this uh, fake news kind of a thing start, right? Because of course, we don't want, good news is great, we want that, but the fake news is always problematic. But how does it start and can we really stop it? And do real people actually really even believe it? Maybe it's not as big a deal as you know, it sort of feels like. And then I came across some articles, really fascinating ones. One of them hap happened to do with uh, Stanford University students, and they were given tests to determine whether they could spot which of the news pieces was fake and whether or not the news source behind it was reliable or not. And they found out that America's best and brightest struggled with trying to figure out which of these particular articles were fake and which ones came from reputable news sources or not, giving equal weight to some clearly inferior news sources. It was a, it's a, it, the whole thing is pretty startling to me. In fact, sometimes like some family or some people send me some uh, really, you know, th something loony goes on out in, in internet world and uh, they'll send me an article that like is loony, right? And you, you guys get these I'm sure all the time. Don't forward them to me because what I do is um, I just send you the Snopes article back. No comment. I don't say, hey, you know, I thought this too, and maybe I, you know, I heard that, but you know, I looked it up a little bit. I just, I make no comment, and I just send you the Snopes article. And uh, so none of you actually do that. Uh, this is from another time in my life. Uh, but uh, my family actually does. But uh, so I, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it doesn't take much for us. And as followers of Christ, you know, we actually should be talking about getting real information out there, unless it's satirical news because that's a totally different thing. That's fun. Like The Onion, any fans of The Onion or anything like that? Any satirical news sources? Or there's a Christian version as well. Any fans of the Babylon Bee? Yes! All right, so the, these are just downright funny. And so if you're not a, a fan or you don't know of the Babylon Bee, it's a Christian satirical news source. And uh, if you want me to read your email immediately when it comes in, make it look like it came from the Babylon Bee. 
I will interrupt almost anything I am doing to read the headlines from the Babylon Bee. Uh, in fact, I wonder like, if I got an alert right now during the message, if I would just open it up and read the headlines, because I find them so funny. So here are a couple of them. Man's baptism overturned after instant replay reveals he was not fully submerged. <laughs> We're going to start filming. This is real stuff, man. This is important. You should, this fits our series. Young Earth creationist parents force child to play with human action figures and dinosaurs at the same time. <laughs> Which I actually wanted my kids to do. Uh, nation's atheists are standing strong despite the existence of bacon. Clearly, you know, there must be a God because bacon exists in the world. Here's one to get you guys uh, animated. Uh, Trump awards self the Presidential Medal of Not Committing Crimes. <laughs> By the way, they're super political. They go after everyone and every, anyone, uh, almost it seems. Trump also admits he has no idea why evangelicals keep supporting him. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, for those of you leaning another direction here, we, get, uh, we got uh, Cortez calls for a boycott of Sesame Street after discovering the show is sponsored by numbers. <laughs> I love the Babylon Bee. By the way, this is real. The Pope does confirm extra time in purgatory for anyone who spoils Endgame. So do not spoil the Endgame. <laughs> uh, so where was I? Oh yes, fake news, fake news. So people often will make significant decisions when, it's, when we're dealing with fake news. And I see this when it comes to Christianity. I see it when it comes to faith. People walk away because they have believed a fake news version of Christianity. And this is heartbreaking. I was talking to a guy at Starbucks just this past week, and we get to talking about things of faith. And uh, he really largely said to me, you know, I mean, listen, you can believe anything you want, but I mean, do you actually believe that Christianity is true? And of course, we're literally in this series, right? So it was really quite funny. And I'm like, well, yeah, I really do. He's like, but you know, it was, the Bible was written so many hundreds of years after the time of Christ. And I'm like, wow, you know, this is amazing because I'm literally talking about this thing this week. But this is a very common idea. A study was done some while back by the American Bible Society. They said that 38% of young non-Christians say the Bible is mythology. That's their dominant understanding of it. Countless people have walked away from Christianity because they have bought into a fake news version that tells people they simply cannot trust the Bible. And if you have walked away from Christianity, or if you resist following Jesus because of the Bible, then this message is for you. And if you have friends who think that it's, it's cute, maybe a little naive for you, but it's, it's cute that you, you believe a book of fairy tales, then hopefully there will be some things during this message that you will find helpful. Because my hope is that no one at Beacon never ever needs to answer hard questions about the Bible by simply telling people, well, you know, that's just what I feel. That's what I believe. I think we can do much better than that. So I want to talk about the trustworthiness of the Bible today, and I'm going to focus primarily on the ancient texts of the New Testament. 
So we got a, a boatload of content I'm going to dump on you. It's going to be a little bit different from some of the other messages uh, because of that. And, and when we talk about, you know, sometimes we talk about the Bible, and it kind of becomes this all-or-nothing conversation. It's really a huge topic, and it can cause us to get bogged down with unfamiliar genres or understanding or critiquing ancient cultures or intense textual criticism questions and a whole host of other complex ideas that, of course, we simply can't cover all of them in 30 minutes. And so when we talk about the Bible, you know, people will read about a 6,000-year-old earth or, you know, a giant flood or something like that, and they wonder about the dinosaurs and where do they all fit in and uh, you know, and with that, you know, you start hearing about, you know, giants in the land and fire from heaven and, and all of this sort of stuff. And what takes place is a, a distancing. People start to move away from it and they go, well, obviously I can't believe in giants. And so because I can't believe in giants, then I can't believe in any of it. And I think this has been a big challenge because if we are to be educated and sophisticated people and we believe that the Bible is incompatible with that, then we will simply pull away from listening to its messages. When a professor tells us that Constantine created the Bible in order to oppress people, we think, well, that's really bad news. I don't really want to be a part of that sort of historic oppression. You know, or you hear these, you know, people talking about the scriptures there, you know, the Bible is misogynistic or it's bigoted, it's outdated. And so we jettison the whole thing. It raises these difficult questions of whether or not the Bible's trustworthy. Now, I do, in fact, trust the whole of the scriptures, even the parts that I don't quite understand or I find challenging. And I have my, my own fairly involved story as to how I have come to that conviction about the whole of the scriptures, which I would love to share with you sometime. But for our consideration this morning, we've got to stop and ask the question, how is it then that so many sophisticated and educated people, countless, very rational Christians, do come to trust the Bible? How is that possible? And that's what I really want to explore with you from this little sliver by focusing on the New Testament texts, particularly on the history and some manuscripts and eyewitness accounts and martyrs and things like that. So I don't want us to consider sort of all of the Bible here, just the most recent texts that claim to be eyewitness accounts of the most remarkable person that ever lived. That's what I want to wade into here. So how do we determine if an historical document is trustworthy. You might not have considered this before, but like just as an example, let's just say George Washington. You, you believe George Washington really did exist, and you believe uh, that he was part of the Revolutionary War. You believe that he was the first president, but how do you actually know these things to be true? And so if you were to, to set out to prove that true, there'd be a lot of things that you would do. You would look for the documents that were written around the time. You'd look for other people that wrote about George Washington at the time. Uh, you would look for any sort of houses that he might have stated and hear the story behind that or go to the, the sites where he actually did some great battle or something. And you would, you would collect all of that information, all of that data, all of that evidence, and you would come up with a fairly accurate representation of who he was, what he did, what he said, what people heard, all of that kind of stuff. And you would come to really know him in an historical way like that. And that's actually what we largely do with the scriptures as well. 
and, and some folks, you, maybe you haven't quite considered it in this way, but I want to take just a, a, a tiny little text this morning. It's Romans chapter 1.1. It's a short little text from a document that we call the Epistle to the Romans. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to take this as a sample, but we could actually do this a hundred times over with nearly any text in any part of the, the New Testament. But I just want to kind of work it through intellectually with us here. So we know, uh, we call it the Epistle of the Romans. It was written by a first century rabbi named Paul. Now, fortunately for us, we don't have to go to a museum to read this ancient document. And we don't have to know ancient Greek because it's already been translated and it's already been copied and compiled and distributed to us for easier access. So while it's true that it happens to be in what we call the Bible, it is also simply an historical document that is worthy of your consideration. So it starts off in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome, and on and on it goes. So what do we know about this text? Well, we know that the writer was Paul, or we call him Saint Paul. And he was tying his letter to historical events. He mentions the ancestors of Jesus. He mentions King David. He, act, he writes to actual people who later in the letter he will name a whole, a whole slew of people that he references. Tell so-and-so I said this and tell so-and-so I said this. And he's writing them to actual people in a very real city, a city called Rome, which of course is the ancestral city, the old city, the ancient city of our current day Rome, an easier one for us to check out. There are thousands of examples of historical references in the whole of these letters. Even the genre of the writing is actually obvious. He's writing a letter to a group of Christians that is filled with impressive philosophical and theological arguments. So these aren't fairy tales or mythologies. It, it isn't even metaphorical language that he is using. He is creating a finely tuned and well-reasoned argument that he expects intelligent people to be able to analyze and then accept. He is arguing, in a sense, in the most positive use of that, his point. It was written in the Greek language, and scholars tell us that the earliest copy of this that we currently have is from around 150 to 200 AD. Remember, the time of Christ was around 30 AD. So we're talking 150 to 200 AD, which puts it around 70 to 100 years after the time of Paul, which is at the absolute latest. We actually have one of these manuscripts. It's called Manuscript P46. It's kept at the University of Michigan, dated to around 150 AD. And you can read these things that we just read 
in the Greek language right there at the University of Michigan. Now, not only that, but we can also determine that it was, even though that's the copy we have from 150 AD, we can actually determine a little closer as to when it was written down originally. Because now you can start to ask yourself questions about what does it tell us about what was going on in the world. So back to George Washington for a second. Let's say you are reading documents uh, from the life of George Washington, and you've got a whole lot of documents that keep talking about all of his battles. And they end the story with him winning some great, some great battle or some great war. You would be able to date that to before the time he was president. Yet if you found a document that references him as the president, you would know it would have had to have been written after the war. Because, of course, it's now referencing something we can tie to history. And a lot of scholars have recognized that there were key events that took place in history that are super well documented through other sources and archaeology that tell us events that the writers most certainly would have referenced. For instance, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD would have been an amazing historical event for Paul and other writers to reference because it largely would have proved some of their points. They would have been able to say, look, Jesus is the new temple. Your temple is now destroyed. This was what Jesus said was going to happen. But they didn't do that. Why didn't they say that? Well, most likely it's because they were written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so scholars use these and a whole lot of other means. It's a very well-developed science. They put this document around 55 AD. So you're talking about really closing the gap now. And this really starts to get at the comment that my new friend in Starbucks made, that the Bible isn't reliable because it was written down so many centuries after the events took place. But the truth of the matter is, this has long been proven wrong. That is super old information that even liberal scholars no longer embrace. I'm sure there are some out there that do, but the vast majority, even of the liberal scholars, are putting the dates of the texts of the New Testament earlier and earlier and earlier. Even some liberal scholars are dating the Gospels into the 40s and the 50s. So all of these documents were most certainly written in the first century. So you're talking about just a handful of years between the life of Christ, the authors themselves, and the copies, the writings, when they were written, and then the copies that we have. In fact, one of these, my favorite, is uh, the John Rylands Manuscript, or called Manuscript P52. It's uh, located in Manchester, and it has been dated to around 100 AD. And here's why I really like it. It's one of the earliest fragments found of the Gospel of John. And for many years, liberal scholars used to put the Gospel of John as the latest of all the Gospels as to when they could be written. And I, I know this is a little bit of information here. I'll just stick with me here because it's, it's key stuff. It's important stuff. They used to put it really late because the Gospel of John talks about the deity of Christ in such an, an open way. And so the scholars, liberal, liberal scholars would say, well, if they were talking about the deity of Christ, and clearly this had to, we had to add mythology 
to the gospel because whatever was happening with Jesus, we know he couldn't be God because that's, of course, unbelievable. Therefore, if we have these writings, they had to have been written by like followers of John or a Joine school. It had to be like 200 AD or 300 AD where they could add all of this mythology to it. And that was the dominant view of the liberal academy for many, many decades. And then they find the John Rylands manuscript, which puts it 100 year, at 100 AD, puts it 50 or 100 or 200 years earlier than they said it could have existed, which is a fascinating slap to the liberal establishment of the academy, more of the critical analysis. I don't mean that in the political sense, but in the critical analysis of the scriptures, which is also part of the reason many are now dating it earlier. By the way, that copy was found in Egypt. So not only was it written around 100 AD, but it was found in Egypt when it was probably written in Asia Minor, which means it had to be written, it had to be copied, and it had to make its way all the way to Egypt where it could be found, which actually means that the writing of the one that it was copied from, we're putting that now close to the time that John lived. You're talking about a decade or two. And of course, every year we continue to find more and more manuscript evidence. Now you might say, yes, all right, that's, I, I hear what you're saying, but the texts were copied so many times, right? You remember the game of telephone where you, you start on one side, you tell a kid something, you line up a whole bunch of people, and all of a sudden by the end it gets, you know, it gets like radically changed. Like you start with the first one, you're like, hey, don't move, there's a, a giant spider behind you, and then he tells the next one, and he tells the next one, and he tells the next one, and all of a sudden at the very end it sounds something like, you know, won't, won't a moose veer aside to be nice to you? Or, or something like, you're like, what? This isn't even the same thing. And people go, well, that's how the Bible was transmitted. Well, not exactly. It would be more like you, you tell the first person, look, there's a giant spider behind you. And you tell the se they tell the second person. The second person tells the third person. The third person says, hey, I'm sorry. I just want to check with the first and the second person if this is what was said. Then they move on when they get the claim. And then they move on again. And then the fourth person checks with the third person, checks with the second person, because that's actually how we got the scriptures. Not to mention, it wasn't about a spider. It was about a message that they believed held eternity in it. So there was great care when it was being handed down. The texts have not been changed or corrupted over the years. And you could kind of, they like to use comparisons to other manuscripts from the ancient world to kind of talk about this. And so Tacitus, a Roman historian, he wrote Annals of, the Imperial, of Imperial Rome. It was written around 116 AD. The earliest copy that we have is from 850 AD. So you're about a you know, 600 year gap. There's one of those available to us to study. Then you look at Josephus, a first century Jewish historian. He wrote around 93, 94 AD. The first copy we have, and we only have nine of his copies, 1,080, 900 years later. This is, a, this is the study of ancient documents. This is the reality of how we study ancient documents. Homer's Iliad, it crushes the competition. It was written around 700 BC. We have one from around 900 AD. We actually have 1,800 copies or fragments of copies of the Iliad. It is the best attested work in antiquity until you get to the New Testament. When you get to the New Testament, if you want to compare it to the Iliad of 1800, we have 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 5,000 of them, which can all be compared 
all be compiled, all be analyzed. If you want to add the text from other languages, we're up to like 24,000 of them. There's just no comparison. Add all of them, Old and New Testament, we have 66,000. And these, some of these are whole codexes. You're talking thick, thick pages of these manuscripts. It, it's, there is, it is unprecedented in ancient literature the number and the accuracy of the manuscripts that we have. And all of them tell the same story, that the Bible hasn't changed in any substantive ways for 2,000 years since it was written. Leading scholars like Benjamin Warfield, Princeton Theological Seminary, he held four doctorates, a real brainiac, he said, if we compare the present state of the New Testament text with that of any other ancient writing, we must declare it to be marvelously correct. Such has been the care with which the New Testament has been copied, a care which has doubtless grown out of true reverence for its holy words. The New Testament is unrivaled among ancient writings in the purity of its text as actually transmitted and kept in use. That's the real news story. Now, you might say, all right, and this is, this is only a side tangent here. I'm just going to kind of throw it in here. But what if they were lying? All right, so we have accurate writings. We know that to be true. But what if the people who were writing these things were just flat out lying to us? Well, that would be remarkable on a whole number of fronts. First off, there's no evidence, so you would want to deal with that little problem <laughs> that you'd have to kind of actually show that there is, there is proof of that assertion because you can make any claim you want, but that doesn't mean it is true. There would also have to be widespread collusion among the writers, which is a great word. We should use that more. I, I think we should work that into the public discourse in some way because we're not yet sick of it. But even their critics and their enemies didn't disagree in any substantive way with what they were saying. And that's a significant point that often goes unstated. We would also need to accept the fact, and I think this is, this to me, just it just sort of intuitively makes sense. Maybe it won't be as compelling to you, but it, it, we would have to accept the fact that the people that gave us the highest moral code the world had ever seen were fakes and liars. That's what we would have to come to the conclusion. People who were telling us, love your enemy, and, and that their God was the author of truth. We would have to take all of those things, and we would have to just say, actually, no, but they were all liars. And it's also helpful to consider, what were they getting out of it? You know, it, 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 what were they going? They were, they were shooting for a big, big payday? Why were they telling these stories? What were they doing? Why were they trying to publish their articles so they get more likes? Like, what was going on? Was it like an early version of, like, Instagram or something? Like, they were trying to, like, yeah, man, if I get really popular now. Because you know what happened to these people? They endured incredible suffering because of what they knew to be true. There was incredible heartache, intense persecution, beatings, even death. Why would they hold on to a lie? How many folks do you know would endure all of that and continue with the lie? It makes no sense. I think if as soon as you know people started getting tortured, they'd be like, oh, hey, by the way, I'm sorry. Actually, we just it was a, we made it up. <laughs> Not true. You can back off with the uh, with the crucifixions, please. So what do we know? 
This is what we know about this document. It was written very close to the time of Christ. The writer really did believe what he was writing. He was an eyewitness to the events that he records. He is accurate in all of the details that can be checked. And he was willing to give his life for the message. And this is all simply part of the historical and analytical record. And in actuality, this could be said about all of the documents that we call the New Testament. Now, it is also possible that the writer was simply wrong about many things. That is true. But we have to remember that they were eyewitnesses. So maybe they could be wrong about like a city or something where something took place or maybe what order something happened. But is it really reasonable to believe that they were wrong about their best friend and greatest hope being killed by professional executioners and then rising again three days later? They were just mistaken? They were duped somehow? It's a type of arrogance on our part that goes way beyond what any of the evidence would be able to support. And I find it incredulous that people would rather believe often ludicrous theories rather than the one that makes the most sense, that they really did see what they did and that they were willing to die for what they knew to be true. Anyway, even apart from that, historians and archaeologists continue to verify the broad strokes and many of the details of these ancient texts. So we get to verify as much as we can archaeologically. And so you figure out where other things are mentioned, what cities have already been excavated, Jerusalem, Jericho, Beersheba, Babylon. We find ancient inscriptions all the time that validate the story and the characters and the places of the Old and the New Testament. And we find archaeology supports the manuscripts of the Bible. And you can actually do this in old and new. You can just, you kind of go through archaeology and see what they're finding and see what the, the new discoveries are. And you will find all sorts of inscriptions and you'll find tunnels that were carved in stone that have been, been referenced throughout the scriptures time and again. And this helps us paint a more full and complete picture. For instance, in the book of Luke, there are references to 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands. That's how much history and geography that Luke includes in his gospel. And there are no mistakes in his record. He's right about where they are and when they were and all of that kind of stuff. He nails them all. This has led others like Sir Frederick Ken Kenyon. He was a director of British Museum Antiquities, linguistic scholar, president of British School of Archaeology. He said, the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. That's the real news story. Because the documents are trustworthy. I can't get into all of the details about this kind of stuff, but the, the reality is even if you didn't have any of the texts that we currently call the New Testament texts, if we had none of them, if they were all ripped out of the world, we would still know everything you need to know from other sources to come to grips with who Jesus is and the claims that he makes for your life. One professor, he went through and did this, Dr. Edwin Yamuchi. He said, if we, if we wanted to just take the information we know from outside sources, not from the actual manuscripts of the New Testament, what would we know about Jesus? He said, first, we would know that first, Jesus was a Jewish teacher 
Second, many people believed that he performed healings and exorcisms. Third, some people believed he was the Messiah. Fourth, he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Fifth, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Sixth, despite this shameful death, his followers who believed that he was still alive spread beyond Palestine so that there were multitudes of them in Rome by A.D. 64. And seventh, all kinds of people from the cities and countryside, men and women, slave and free, worshipped him as God. You still need to come to grips with him and his claims. And that would happen without the scriptures. Fortunately, we do have trustworthy and reliable documents. Now, there's a whole piece of this that I'm not going to be able to get into. It's about prophecy and stuff. Maybe we'll pick this up in the, uh, maybe a Facebook Live this week or something like that. And there are some key prophecies. But anyway, there's a quick summary that I wanted to give you. If you're ever dealing with this question, and you can remember this acronym. I've already covered a couple of them for you. It's MAPS. And so you just kind of put this in your head. And what does MAPS stand for? Well, it stands for the Manuscript Evidence. It stands for the archaeology that supports the manuscripts and, and the texts. It's about prophecy, which says that there were hundreds of prophecies already on the books in the Jewish scriptures, or what we call the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures, which was in wide circulation, which Jesus fulfilled. And some of them would be statistically impossible for a single person to fulfill. Things that had to do with his death and things that had to do with what happened after his death or even the manner of his death or where he was born and ancestry and things like that. And so you bring all of those things together and you have this MAPS acronym to help us understand the reliability of these texts. Now, so what, is that, what does that mean for us? Well, for me, what it meant was life-changing because when I was in high school and college, I left the faith that I had been raised in. And I just didn't want anything to do with it anymore. I wanted to live my own way. I wanted to do my own thing. And so the, the Bible was sort of an obstacle toward me doing whatever I wanted and living my life the way I wanted to. And so I started to buy in to all of these ideas that you really can't trust this stuff. And if you can't trust it historically and you can't trust it in those ways, then why should you trust it in anything else? Why should I believe what it says about eternal life and salvation. Why should I believe what it, what it tells me about how to live my life? Because that's pretty intrusive, is the way I viewed it back then. And I began a journey of studying the scriptures, but not simply reading them and trying to, to understand what they say to me, but understanding whether or not they could be trusted as an accurate accounting of what really took place in the ancient past. And I began to increase in my own conviction through my own study and the reading of many books and countless conversations with lots of people. I came to see that the texts of the New Testament really were a reliable accounting of the life of Jesus. And through that, I realized that I really wanted to know the man that the scriptures were talking about. That if these things are true, then it changes everything. Changes everything about who I am and about my value and my worth in the world in the eyes of God. And it changes the joy that I receive in living according to the way that I was designed. It changes everything. And I found that powerfully compelling. And I really wanted to know the man that these eyewitnesses were talking about. 
And back in our text, it has this fascinating little section there. He says that Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He puts that in his greeting. That was a key focus, his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. That's you and that's me. We're the people called by these apostles in these writings to follow Christ because he desperately loves us. And as the argument goes, there was this man, Jesus, and he predicted his own death and then his own resurrection. And then he pulled it off and hundreds of people saw it. He puts the resurrection right here in his greeting because it is an essential and a key part. It's also, by the way, one of the most significant and powerful of the evidences to trust in Christ. Unfortunately, it isn't one of the questions that has gone, come into us yet, so we haven't scheduled a sermon on it. Uh, and it's a whole sermon all on its own, and it hasn't yet come in, so I don't think, I don't know if it's going to make the cut in uh, our conversation. So anyway, these New Testament documents are in fact completely trustworthy, and there are a group of men and women who are willing to lay down their lives to call you to consider it. So what will you do with that? I hope in my prayer is that you will allow these ancient documents to draw you ever more fully and completely into the presence of a God who desperately loves you and wants to use the power of the resurrection to transform your life now and give you eternal life with him. Let's pray. Father, what we are hoping for here is the kind of thing that only your spirit can do. What we need, Lord, is the present, your presence and your unique uh, insight into our own challenges and our own issues, our own problems, Lord. That's what we need is we want you to do what only you can do. Father, you met me where I was at and you answered so many countless questions through so many different means. And Lord, that's what I, that's what I need here. Each person here is in a different place. They've heard different things. They've had different challenges. You tell us, Lord, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Please bring your truth into our hearts. Let us see. Give us the, the basis of our faith. You've tied it to history. Let us begin to see and understand these things more fully. And Lord, let the power of the promise of this resurrected life draw us into this conversation with you. The stakes are so high. I pray, Lord, that no one here would leave without a commitment to seriously consider your claims. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.